Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. This episode is sponsored by Plant Medicine Law Group, the American boutique law firm serving the psychedelic and cannabis space. PMLG was founded by three women in November 2020. Their mission is to expand equitable and legal access to plant medicine and help companies in the psychedelic and cannabis industries succeed in a complex emerging market. PMLG provides clients with strategic expertise to successfully launch, fund and grow their businesses. They are committed to humanizing the legal process and empowering you with the information and guidance you need to build the next generation of successful businesses. The PMLG team embraces complexity, encourages innovation and aligns themselves directly with your vision. I got to know Adriana Kurtzer, one of the PMLG founding partners, during a digital conference. She then invited me to join the Interfaith Working Group Faith and Psychedelics. I'm a huge fan of Adriana's and her team. And if you need more information, please head over to www.plantmedicinelaw.com. Welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guests today are the architects Esther Brutzkus and Peter Greenberg. And you might wonder, what will we talk about in a podcast like this one, if not about psychoactive compounds and psychedelics? And where this architecture comes in? Well, you'll learn about this in a minute. Founded in 2002 in Berlin, Esther Brutzkus Architects is an internationally established architecture and interior design practice with global ties based in Berlin. They are well known for extensive experience with design on many scales, from the design of tables and furniture to exquisite residences and workspaces to international theaters, restaurants and hotels. Esther was named one of the Architectural Digest top 200 influences in the design world. Growing up in Berlin, she studied architecture at Berlin's Technical University and later at the School of Architecture in Belleville, Paris, before founding her own Berlin office in 2002. Peter received his Master of Architecture from Harvard's Graduate School of Design and graduated cum laude with distinction in architecture from Yale University, where he also studied philosophy and the history of art. He's a licensed architect in the US in Massachusetts and New York and is a certified interior designer. Since Peter has become partner, the firm has won several international design competitions, has won many design awards and has completed several significant projects. 
including the restaurant Remy and Villa Kellermann, Tim Rauer and projects for Relax Sound, Volkswagen Autostadt and the PSD Bank. So as you can see, here are two pros to talk about trauma, but this time not in brains, but in buildings and houses. So the question is, can buildings be as traumatized from a severe historic incident as much as brains? And could this have an effect on people living in these buildings today? Here in Berlin, there are many buildings in which Jewish families lived until they got deported to a concentration camp. So would this affect the new owners of the apartment moving in after all this happened? I was always wondering about this, also since I live in the Jewish area in Berlin. So Peter, Esther and I had many conversations about this and I found out how many architects are actually thinking about room karma or building karma. Of course, the follow-up question I am asking myself is, can the trauma and the aura of a building be transformed if these buildings might host psychedelic treatments and can we help buildings to heal, to be redefined? But let's ask Esther and Peter, who are the building therapists here. So please enjoy this very special episode. Today we have a very special episode on the New Health Club because it's not necessarily directly about psychedelic therapy, but maybe <laughs> later on it's another question I would have. So I have the great pleasure to have Peter Greenberg and Esther Brutzkus today as guests, two very famous architects from Berlin. And um, the reason why I chose them, we're going to tell you in a second. But today, first of all, I would like if you would introduce you to the audience first, what you're exactly working on in general and in total. <laughs> uh, thank you forever. very much for inviting us. Uh, we're very excited. Okay. <laughs> and um, well, uh, so we're both architects here in Berlin. Um, I created Esther Botskus Architects um, in 2002 and um, we're lucky to create wonderful projects in Berlin over the last almost 20 years. And uh, Peter just um, joined five years ago, moved to Berlin a few years ago. And uh, since he's in Berlin, we did the Remy from Lauda and Stein. Uh, we uh, built the restaurant um, of Tim Rauer, his main restaurant, and the Villa Kellermann is the most recent restaurant we did. But we also um, do um, lots of housing projects for clients and hotels and everything what's fun. Mm -hmm. I come from New York. I wanted to be an architect since I was a very small child. And I worked in a series of different kinds of firms until I, at a certain point, realized that I really wanted to balance my life. And an influential professor told me something once, which was that the ideal life for an architect is to balance practice and research and teaching and travel. So uh, I go in and out of my life of doing one thing in this category more than others. But one of the things I did was I became a university professor in an American university that had a program in Berlin. Mm. And they sent um, our students over to Berlin to study with German professors, um, which is where I met Esther, because Esther and I taught together in this program. 
And then it turned out that we liked each other and that we worked very well together. And so I moved here. Okay. Now we work together. Amazing. That's a great story. We had a conversation a couple of times already, besides your amazing work you do in Berlin, um, about the possible, let's say, traumatization of buildings. And, and I think I remember a conversation that a couple of people coming to Berlin, for example, from Italy, every time they went into buildings that had some, let's say, Nazi pass, which probably 70% of Berlin buildings probably have, they always kind of said at one point, well, they have, had a weird feeling in this building or like, no wonder this restaurant is not working in this building because it used to be, I don't know, like, for example, the Jewish, former Jewish girls' school had a restaurant that obviously didn't really work very well. And then, of course, people say like, well, maybe just... They should have been less expensive or more advertising and stuff. But as we know, it's never really that, I would say. So, and I find it very interesting that especially people coming from another place to Berlin, feeling that way more, like having a much better understanding or maybe like a different energy that they feel. So to make my question short is like, How do architects actually deal with energies that come towards them? Or is it just a fantasy that they feel it at all? And you just think that they must feel this once you get into a building that you're supposed to redesign? I, I'm not sure about like, you know, if Italian yeah, okay, yeah. Italian <laughs> people like French had people. also <laughs> quite a lot of fascists in That's Italy true. and uh, French uh, yeah. uh, too, like in Europe. Yeah. Um, It spread a lot, but yeah, um, sure. but of course there are energies in buildings, and I think um, what we do as interior designers and architects, um, we don't walk with sage through the building. Yeah, but, okay. But we clean spaces up, like we take everything away and um, or try to work with the existent um, but by replanning it and by re-questioning what the building wants and what the client wants and what the program is um, we create a custom made new dress for it well I, I would say this that I think that the most important way of doing interior architecture which is what we do is to have a dialogue with what we find. And that's a dialogue with the, uh, the condition of the, the light. That's a dialogue with the condition of the material that we find. It's a dialogue with the history that we find. And that to not have a dialogue with that history is to ignore the, really the, the, the feeling of that place or the story of the place or to know what those walls witnessed. And I think that it works both ways. Buildings project great strength and powerful energy. And there's also this feeling that the things that they've witnessed or what they are inherently creates a condition that you want to fight against. If I use spaces myself, when I moved into my very first apartment, uh, then I move into another apartment or even office. In the beginning, I kind of like um, sometimes even invite my mom to walk mm -hmm. around with Sage and have this kind of like um, 
energy feeling like clearing out all the old ghosts in order to let space for your own space inside there. And what I personally feel every time I move out of an apartment or out of an office, like while I live there, while I work there, it has all the spirits and the good energy there. Mm -hmm. And once everything is out, it feels empty. And it suddenly feels also kind of like left alone. And that's what I learned also using for our clients is we create the stage for the client and we design the whole interior to feel good. But once the person who, who comes in brings in his soul or her soul and uh, the usage, you know, and then it becomes something like a good restaurant, you know, mm -hmm. it's like um, really the host, uh, the owner of the restaurant really needs to love it and to yeah. care about it and the team. And then suddenly once it's all running and working, like the Remy, when it opened, like even when it was finished, it was beautiful. But when the whole team was working there and the energy of moving around and creating food, it kind of all fell together. It all came together to a whole, whole place. Okay. So, so it's all together. It's like the, the good planning, a good interior design, but also the energy of the team and the users. I mean, here we are in Berlin. I think yeah. that, you know, the elephant in the room is that <laughs> yeah. we, you know, really terrible, terrible things happened in this city. And why do we live here? You, you were born here, but I chose to come here. To be honest, I think that one of the things that drew me to the city was its history But n not the period between 1932 and 1945. It's actually all of the other history. The Weimar period was a really interesting time for this city. And there was created here absolutely amazing things that, you know, modernism was in many ways invented right here. And uh, one of the fascinating things about Berlin is that in many ways, the 20th century happened here. And the First World War was a kind of a this thing about imperialism. Then so many people, the millions of people came to Berlin and didn't have housing. And so in the 20s, there's kind of an invention of how to make the modern city. And then in 1945, once the city was destroyed, it had to be made yet again. And it wasn't made once, it was made in two different ideologies, right? So there's the West and the East. And then in 1989, it was done again. And this kind of space of innovation and of this kind of memory that this place has for more than its dark period, but its memory of its openness and of kind of all of these lessons that it has for us and all these great stories to have dialogue with, that's the kind of dialogue I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I come from America and I'm Jewish and I know a lot of my American friends and my Jewish friends don't understand how it is that why do you go to a place that has such a story. And really all I can say to that, other than my happiness, our happiness in this city would be the biggest revenge possible for what happened, is also to say that, you know, I've come to say to my American friends, how can you live in a place where there was slavery? And how can you live in a place where there was, you know, genocide of all the people who lived here? And Now, when I go back to America and travel, I can see those sites 
in a way that I don't think I saw them before. You know, we drove from Miami to my family in North Carolina, and you go through the Deep South and you go to these museums that are house museums, and they're beautiful houses. They're beautiful houses from the early 19th century. Why are they beautiful houses? Because they were built with slave labor. And they tell these stories in such innocent ways, but it makes it seem like uh, all you're looking at is what things appear on the surface of. But actually, there's a real kind of presence of all the stories that those walls witnessed. So we see that here, too. And so now you have a project in Grunewald, right? Yeah, it's in Grunewald here and, um, in Berlin. And the, the original house was from the Weimar times, right? No, actually, before. it was before that. Before, okay. Um, it was built in uh, 1912 to 1914. Mm -hmm. It was a very significant house by the most prominent society architects of the time. Who was Jewish, right? The architects were Jewish, and the owner... It was the sister of Walter Rathenau. Oh, okay, Rathenau, okay, yeah. And okay. Uh, uh, her husband um, was a banker. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, they were society people, and mm -hmm. they had a long happening there. So okay. all the uh, Berlin creative and financial society was coming in and out through that house. They had always Sunday's open house for everybody to come. There's a lot written about the parties that Mrs. Okay. Andrea wrote. <laughs> and in the dining room that we get to work in, there were weekly parties for all of the intelligentsia of the Weimar period. And we have the original chairs. So we have the chairs that Einstein sat in and dined at. And we have a, a client who's very interested in this phase of the house. And we see the project as a kind of time travel, a Zeitreise, in a way where we want to restore the kind of energy that this house had and was intended to have that was taken away from it. And houses can be, all sorts of spaces can feel Loved or unloved. And, uh, you know, this house was a little empty. And although people lived there, it wasn't taken care of. It wasn't loved. It didn't have the spirit it should have. And um, I think we see this project as a kind of a, uh, as kind of a responsibility that we have to kind of bridge over some of these times that were evil and kind of reconnect to that kind of energy that was present in that Weimar house. Okay. And um, there are a lot of houses also in Grunewald and Dahlem and all over the place here that were actually prominent Nazi families lived. In. And I mean, it seems that sometimes what I'm wondering sometimes is that there's no really contemplation about this and some people even think that it's kind of not fancy but just that was then and this is now so now in, in terms of the new psychedelic let's say thinking is that we know that that kind of doesn't exist this was then and this is now because for example in a trip a lot of things can come to you that seemed like a couple of thousand years ago even although you can't really confirm it with an historical background, but you can easily get the feeling that you're dealing with things that are like, you know, not just a couple of years ago. So 
I mean, as architects, do you ever think it's ever possible to kind of create a building that is absolutely without any traumatizational content? Because I mean, there are, if you research, there are articles about an architecture that is like um, looking into creating places that actually would help people who were once traumatized for whatever reason kind of get better and just like maybe get a sense back of harmony or like just a different feeling than maybe that they had when they got, you know, wherever they lived or whatever happened to them. So I think the question would be, so do you think that rooms or architecture could be like a, a tool for healing? Every building which is being created, every project which is being created or done, it's never a peaceful process. It's always kind of like the planning is emotional, mm -hmm. the construction is emotional, you know, like I think you can create interiors where people feel good and you can create beautiful spaces mm -hmm. and nice materials and you can heal in spaces and you can design spaces which are uh, healing or helping like for schools or something. But I grew up in a, in a building from the Weimar Republic mm -hmm. or maybe short after. It was maybe even built by the Nazis, but it's owned by the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And when we renovated it, when we moved in, we found newspapers from 1933 underneath the wallpaper. Really? Wow. We took it all off and... Yeah. Now the whole block is mostly Jewish families, you know, and it's what Peter said before, right? Like we took it over again and um, live a life and create things, which is a good revenge. If we didn't feel that our spaces could contribute to healing, I, I don't think we'd do what we do. I think some people think of architecture as a visual thing because we mostly know it through photographs. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's a spatial thing. It's an experiential thing. It's something you go to, you're in, you live. It's something that you're inside of. You actually have to be there. Photographs are a poor representation of architecture. And it's not just uh, visual. It involves all of your senses and all of your intellect and all of your knowledge. I want to go back to something that I said before, is I think that the most important idea in architecture, in interior architecture, is having dialogue with what you find. And you have to be able to listen to what you hear in a place in order to say something back. Because otherwise it's a monologue and not a dialogue. And what you're having a dialogue with is the layers of what happened there, what people did to it, what people the mistakes people had there, the wonderful things that happened there. And um, as Esther said early on, one of our jobs is to clean it up and to go and in a literal way, you go into a room, there is white paint on the wall. What is under that white paint? Take that paint off mm -hmm. and you find layers and layers and layers and layers of interesting things. One thing we don't like to do is to do an architecture that pretends to be old. So I don't like to make something look old, especially in an old house. If it's old, it's old, and it should just be what it is. And our work is mostly about 
finding contrasts as a way of making dialogue. So you put something in that's quite shiny and new into a room that's quite dull and old, or you find the texture that was actually in the space and let it be and put something next to it that's different so that you notice both. I think the most exciting moment if we work with an existing building is when we strip everything away. Like it's always the most beautiful moment of the space and it always feel like cleaning it, you know, and in an ideal world, we would have always time to strip everything away, yeah. <laughs> see what we find and then start doing the planning of what will come. But unfortunately, it's most of the time not the case. Most of the time you work, 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 you plan everything, you strip everything down mm -hmm. and then you continue immediately to build. But when we did a hotel in St. Petersburg, We uh, took out all the gypsum, the fake ceiling and the <laughs> ugly tiles. And suddenly we found a white terrazzo underneath and the space was so much higher. But then all the new windows were ordered already and we couldn't leave all of that, you know, because it was just too late in the process. But I think I believe very much, and this is what makes the city of Berlin or the transformation after the reunification, is that... It kind of created this new trend of taking out all the old, stripping everything down and then mm -hmm. using these open spaces and using this uh, rough spaces. This kind yeah. of like, especially what David Chipperfield did with the Neues Museum to show right. what's old and what's new. But I think it's also an environmental issue. I mean, you know, in many ways we have enough buildings, we just we shouldn't tear them down to put up new buildings. We should, we should strip them naked and appreciate them and then, you know, clothe them as they only as they need to be clothed. It is a kind of a Berlin aesthetic to go into a space that into a, an old Speti and take off the layers and reveal what was there and to have a dialogue with the layers of history that you find. Having said that, I think that certain buildings should be torn down, though. Which ones? You can um, be open. <laughs> um, I think that the the building that Hitler had his office in in Munich should be torn down. Yeah. Um, it is a building that I think that currently it's used as a music school. And I'm sure that those who programmed that felt like that was the best use for Uh, you know, what could be more opposite to what decisions that were made in that office than to create music. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to send my daughter to learn music in that space. And I think it's not just the ghosts that are there. It's also the angle of the sun. And it's also the view from that point, how much light comes in that window And I think these kinds of things should be bulldozed. And it shocks me when I go to Munich and see that still there. Yeah, we went to Munich and somebody uh, told us there's a really good Italian restaurant we should go to. And it's a restaurant where even Hitler liked to go. And we felt like, oh, we don't want to go there. No, then you But don't it's like go everybody there knows this restaurant yeah. and yeah. everybody's celebrating their confirmation there. And it's a family meeting point. And I think... That's quite weird. But the point um, is that I think that there are there are these structures around that people no longer see and don't look for. 
and I think people should see them. And I think uh, I feel I would not want to live in a building that uh, came from that era. I would not want to work on a building that came from that era. I feel like it's a one of the challenges of this city is to know what to do with those places. And to be honest, I'm not really sure. You know, I, I, I guess I choose not to engage in that because I do think that there is a there's an ideology that's embedded in the architecture. Almost like an epigenetic trauma situation just for buildings, maybe. But I mean, do you guys remember like one or two situations where you walked into a building, maybe in Berlin, doesn't have to be though, and said like, I don't want to stay here like for longer than... Well, I, I generally have that with basements. I always have okay. to go to the basements and I never want to go to the basement and it freaks me always out, mm -hmm. especially in Altbauten, to go into the basements. It feels always um, bad. I, I feel it all the time, actually. I mean, it's nothing unusual, I think, to feel it all the time, to be honest. I think to live in this city is to have to come to terms with these kinds of feelings. When my sister came to visit... Her feeling was, how can it be so present in your life? And I think you grew up here and tell me that you haven't thought about it so much since I've moved here. Yeah, I was never aware about that. I mean, even when we found the newspaper under the wallpaper at our home, we weren't freaked out by it. We were like, oh, my God, but we took it off. And mm. um, I mean, you can't if you grow up... Uh, in Germany, uh, being Jewish, you're always anyways connected to the Holocaust somehow, you know, so you can't also walk around the city and also think about what happened in every corner of the city just for your psychological health. Yeah, but at the same time, I think we have to think about it every now and then because what's, what's the alternative to forget about it? And we can't forget about it. So I think it's actually less a problem in this city than it is in cities where people have forgotten about it. You know, when you go to, I don't know, you go to many Italian cities, for example, where their fascist buildings are still used as post offices and still yeah. used as whatever. And, Reno. and they have never gone through a phase of taking away the presence of that. And um, you can see it in their politics. Or in America, all of the buildings that express the the slave ownership there's many communities that that where that's expressed in america of course right now or in the last few years the big debate has been about the monuments of uh, white supremacy and in england too right I'm, yeah in england too yeah. but the thing about in america in particular was that these were built in the 1880s in small communities in the South to terrorize the black people. I mean, it was specifically for that purpose. It wasn't just a naive kind of thing of, oh, this was a statue mm -hmm. of some mm -hmm. guy who did some things that now we think are bad. Actually, these were monuments specifically put there a generation after the Civil War to remind people of what their role was. And I think that, you know, there's a big uh, intellectual discussion Well, what's the appropriate thing to do with these statues or these buildings? Do we melt them all down? 
do we uh, just say it's part of our heritage? That's just what it is. Do we put new art next to it that makes you think about it? I don't know what the answer is, but I think the most important thing is to just um, be aware and to think about these things. But I mean, again, like, let's say in the psychedelic context, even if you might actively forget about it or like, you know, just, okay, it was like so long ago and let's just not talk about it every day. But it's almost next to impossible because it will be ingrained in your epigenetic structure, either if you're Jewish and you live here or if you're German and you have a family that was like pretty much every family <laughs> involved in, in the in a Nazi party at one point or like contributing to the rise of Hitler. So could you ever free buildings of that almost like epigenetic DNA? For example, there's this one building where I sometimes stop and try to figure out what has changed in a building. And I don't think anything has changed in Leipziger Straße, which used to be the old um, Ministry of Aviation or something. And it looks exact. I mean, like you can look it up on Google, like you uh, find Nazi buildings in Berlin and it's like that building and it looks exactly the same. And I think Treuhand was in it or something. Coming back to the topic, is there any chance to to get this out of a building or do you just really have to destroy it at one point? I know the building you're talking yeah. about. And I, it's terrifying. Sometimes I get great pleasure out of seeing the rainbow flags that it's flying. And, okay. You know, okay. And if the people who put it up would see what's there now, they would be rolling over in their graves. And I don't know if that's enough, but I think that in a way, this kind of attempt to claim things for your own does help us as a society kind of deal with those kinds of uh, traumas. Yeah, I think it's impossible to delete a trauma mm -hmm. in a building, in a person, in the DNA or whatever. It's all about accepting it and first seeing it, you know, and realizing it was there and then be very present and clear about the mindset and what it stands now for. You know, I think that's a big difference between Germany and the rest of Europe, that Germany really uh, worked a lot on um, the Erinnerungskultur, you mm -hmm. know, and on understanding the history. And uh, like one thing you just said, it's not about the families who were part of the Nazi thing. Mm -hmm. It's the midlife, the normal people who just accepted when the neighbors disappeared and they were happy yeah. that they could buy cheap furniture or get now the professor position, which was empty or something. So it's much more about really being aware and accepting it and then changing it. Without being aware and accepting traumas, you can't move on and you can't change. Like you can't move it away, then it will always haunt you. It's all about um, realizing and then move on and create something new and something better. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, we talked about uh, the case with the, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but this big apartment that Bob Guccione was owning in New York and they couldn't sell it because they didn't know why. And then every time somebody walked in with children, children would cry their eyes out and go crazy. And then, of course, not a big surprise, it came out that it was basically like a lot of porn was shot there, a lot of 70s weird sex parties. And so, and then there was this article or many articles about how they tried everything, like 
sage a hundred times, then like um, shamans came along. It never really worked. And even then, the new people that bought it, they also moved out again. So, I mean, and that's the first time where I realized, wow, I mean, that's like 15 years ago and I read about it or even wrote about it for Vanity Fair back then. Where I was like, well, this is, why is it so hard to get this out of, I mean, with a little sage, of course, <laughs> might be not really enough, but it obviously never really worked that they got rid of the so-called Bob Guccione energy. It's still probably there. Kind of. But so. they never like demolished the interior. No, no. But I so mean, the families who moved in just kept the, the red well, velvet I and mean, the. Of course, they took out the furniture, and but there was this huge pool with the sauna and everything that was renovated. But it didn't seem that they took out like the whole structure. So well, yeah. I mean, architecture has a social content, obviously, and the kinds of things one does as an architect projects certain usage patterns, right? And so a certain kind of pool might not be used for a family pool. It might, yeah, might yeah. suggest different kinds of uses. And so I would recommend a fairly radical <laughs> um, redesign of that place. I think on the one hand, there's a kind of a s structural, physical suggestion of how to use the space. I mean, this is true with Nazi buildings too, that they're imposing, you know, there's a lot of repetition. They're very hierarchical. You know, they make you feel small. This, this is, that ideology is embedded in the space. But I think there's this other layer too, which is simply that we know what happened there and that's impossible to strip away. And uh, there's certain places that I wouldn't want to be because And that I've just witnessed such terrible things that they probably deserve to be parks, you know, something where, you know, we plant trees instead of have, you know, this building. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the same, like some buildings would be totally fine if they would disappear <laughs> in the city. But then it's so weird when you walk towards Brandenburg Gate and you have the Soviet monument there. And it's like, I always have to remind myself, wait a minute, it's, 2021. It is so weird sometimes, even if you just take a walk, you feel like a very certain energy is pulling you back, like very subtle into um, 1945. So when you see that, you feel like you're drawn yeah. back into yeah. the war? Yeah. See, when I see that, I feel good. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like, thank goodness that these people came <laughs> and got rid of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And um, we went there. Uh, to celebrate the end of the war, it felt like an appropriate place to Yeah, many to be. people came and brought flowers and, I mean... There? Okay, yeah. I didn't know. Wow. And actually, it felt yeah. quite joyous, actually. Yeah. That's the therapy in this, which is instead of seeing the trauma, you see the victory over the trauma. It is not only a place of terrible things that happened. It's a place where people were liberated from terrible things. Yeah, that's true. Can you talk a little bit about your specific approach to your work in terms of these topics? I mean, you build not only in Berlin, you build also in other cities and countries, right? I mean, St. Petersburg is also, like Russia is also a place that has many layers of um, trauma, you could say. How do you approach this when you, let's say, this is the address, this is where you should build, or this is what you should redesign? Like first time you come to see the building. So what is your strategy then to think of a new building? 
either interior or if you really have to build it from from scratch but let's well stick a building with you build it from scratch you start from zero yeah. there's no history there's maybe history to the location and yeah. urban and interiors my um experience is that um with our new interiors and with the new reconstruction of the space the whole spirit changes you come suddenly inside and you feel like in another world It always feels like um, a start of a new chapter and a new time, Zeitreise inside the story of that building. I never like really had a space, or at least I wasn't aware of a space where something bad happened. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I guess dramas happen in every all over, right? We never know, knew if a person died at this place where we just are sure. sitting, right? And sure. um, no, absolutely. I think you just have to. I mean, our our thing is to create a new world, you know, in that moment with a new chapter and uh, try to be in the present and make the present better. Yeah, I mean, being an architect is a very optimistic profession. You know, it's good. We. we <laughs> We try to make the world better. We try to repair all of the things that are wrong in the world the way we know how to do it. Famously, um, Louis Sullivan is supposed to have said that form follows function. And sometimes that has been used to justify a new piece of architecture. But it can never be used to justify interior design because interior design is always changing something. A space that was intended to be a, I don't know, a train station becomes a museum or a space that was a restaurant now can become a residence. And so the form isn't in that case determining what to do in it. Actually, there are other issues that let you do that. And so when you kind of create a dialogue with what you find there. That's true in architecture, too. I mean, it's very important in architecture. All good architecture is based on a dialogue with the urban condition, with the lighting condition, with, the, with what you find. But I think that this idea of having a dialogue with history, a dialogue with the specific kind of layers of what's there, and the dialogue with your knowledge of what happened on that space informs what you do or should do or could do as much as anything. And when you come to a space, uh, to get back to your question, you know, the very first thing we do is we just listen to what's there and look and see and hear and do as much research as possible. You know, doing this house in Grunewald is super interesting because it's a very important piece of architecture. Nobody really knows about it, but it's an important building. And uh, there were so few images of it. And we've done a lot of research, and especially our client has done an enormous amount of research. And one thing he found, which was wonderful, was he found a little movie Oh, from, oh. I don't know. It was 1929. Must, I it might have been 1929. A, a, a wedding. It was a wedding that took place <laughs> at that house. Mm -hmm. And you just see cars pulling up and people dressed all fancy getting out. And, you know, everybody's smiling. And then you see the hall and people playing music. And you can just feel that kind of positive 
energy, but you know what's on the horizon. It's 1929, but at the same time, this is there's such a an amazing thing to know what happened in that space and to kind of want to project into the future. Because Zeitreise is not only just about going to the past, but it's about bridging into the future and anticipating all of the things that can happen and will happen and should happen and we could make possible to happen. And so it's that optimism of kind of of design that is part of that dialogue of what you find and what you project as you can see ahead. So that's the, that's the Zeitreise project? Yeah. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about that more and we can just put that in also. Like, this is what you, what you both are working on, right? Yeah, this is that house in Grunewald. Yeah. That oh, that's it, the title for the, yeah, for we, the house. Yeah, we okay. call that project okay. the yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's this idea that this house from 1912 or 14 mm -hmm. that witnessed such amazing mm -hmm. things in this period, the owners were forced to emigrate and to sell it at a, you know, a fraction of what its value was. And then uh, we don't really know what happened there during the war. It was an American or a British guy who kind of like mm -hmm. wanted to do business with the Nazis together, but it didn't work out. So he left and then we don't know how it was used and what it was used. We just find found documents for rebuilding it as an office. Mm -hmm. And then in 1945, it was bought, bought by a Greek family who lived there till today. Yeah. And um, to be perfectly honest, the fact that there isn't some story there that implicates the building somehow frees me to feel like we can restore the presence that this house had in the Weimar period. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you would have to build a retreat, how would that look like? Not necessarily in a super Bali-ish surrounding, just like somewhere in Europe. What would be your favorite idea? We just went to Finland and uh, oh, okay, we right. went yeah, um, exactly. to the office of uh, Alva Alto, yeah. his uh, second office. And there's this one uh, room, which is kind of a multifunctional studio. Sometimes it was an exhibition space. Sometimes it was a studio when they uh, had a lot of work. And it's just this very high curved whitish room with lots of sunlight inside and it was just such a beautiful atmosphere so i think um when we would build a retreat or a school i think like that schools and hospitals and should have like lots of light and um I think the connection to the outside is always very important to have the feeling of inside and outside that we're also enjoying uh, at home when you're at home lying on the bed and seeing the sky, you know, mm -hmm. it's just a beautiful thing. So I think like creating a retreat or a house or whatever on the, um, on the grüne Wiese, you would say in yeah. German. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I think for me personally, it's always the connection between inside outside, mm -hmm. which is the most important thing because we visited this Alva Alto studio, but we visited also a new hotel, which is just more or less like a container box, but there's one huge window and you just feel like you're in a baum house and tree house, okay. like lying outside. And that made it to one of the most beautiful rooms I ever been to as a connection. I think we agree about that. When you come to a site that does not have any architecture on it, you find out what's 
the most beautiful thing about it and the light, the trees, the view, the whatever. And then a piece of architecture should do everything it can to not mess it up. And essentially the house should just be a frame and you should sit inside and be part of this. The best architecture is the architecture that is in some ways um, makes the exteriors kind of present on the interior. And so the way that a window touches the ground or the way a wall keeps going inside and out and makes you feel like what's outside is inside and what's inside is outside. And that blending of inside and outside is the most beautiful architectural experience I know. And here in this city, Miss van der Rode, the last house he did before he emigrated uh, was the house Lemke. It's past Weisensee, but it's on a little zay that's right there. And when you go there uh, in the bedroom, it's a beautiful house. It's very simple. It's so simple. Most people don't even understand why it's so great because it's so simple. And uh, simplicity is really hard. And all it does is frame outdoor spaces with rooms. And in the bedroom, bedroom is just a simple little rectangle. But at the end of the rectangle is a big, huge window that frames the view of the Zay. And later he went on, the when he came to America, one of the first projects he worked on was the house for the, the Razor family uh, in uh, Wyoming. And his drawings for that were a drawing of the landscape with a rectangle around the view and said, this is your living room. And The whole point was that an inside's connection to the outside is the most beautiful thing that you can do as an architect. And uh, uh, that's to be contrasted with another approach, which you could see at the same time by Frank Lloyd Wright at uh, Falling Water. Because what he did there was he took the most beautiful part of the site and he built a house right on it, which... In his hands, because he was a talented architect, he could pull off. But anybody else doing that, that's just a total mistake. Because <laughs> you're just messing it up. But, uh, okay. but I think that the real answer to your question is you want to do is you want to find what's really beautiful about it and just put a frame around it. So this is also not very ideology friendly, right? I mean, if you just um, take nature as the main attraction in a building. When you look at, for example, ideologically loaded buildings from the Nazis or communists, it's never really about nature. It's always about... The Nazis were great nature lovers. It's a, you know, they had all sorts of kind of... It's true. They yeah. had all sorts You're of right. weird, like, get back to the countryside kind of stuff. Like and now? Like what people are doing now in Berlin? <laughs> well... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> this can't go out of the... I, <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of little buildings all over this city that I go to and I'll say, oh, this is a Nazi settlement. And they're little houses with little peaked roofs, lots of trees that play on this kind of, you know, this Heimati kind of feeling of return to the land. So I'm not sure that that's fair to mm -hmm. blame them for <laughs> among the things. But I do think there's a lot of ideology in those buildings too. And, you know, there's a certain kind of way of life that they wanted to impose upon people. 
No, because sometimes it's interesting that some people, for example, say, well, like a psychedelic retreat has to be in nature because you have to connect with nature afterwards and it's so much more important. And then there's some of them who are now kind of opening in, in a city, in a city surrounding, or like, for example, field trip in Amsterdam, you look outside of the, um, I think it's the Eiselmeer, like the water that comes into Amsterdam. So it's not in nature, nature, you just see the water and, but it's integrated in the city. It's not like, it's only valid if you're surrounded by trees and a super beautiful lake. So I find it very interesting that there's this conflict about people saying, no, it has to be in nature and, and others say, well, it can also be integrated in your daily life. You asked, like, what would we do on the Grüne Wiese, yeah. right? Yeah, if it's somewhere, Wiese. like, yeah. if it would be, I mean, like, churches are amazing spaces and you yeah. don't have any connection to the outside. And yeah. if you have connections, it's colorful windows or, like, contemporary churches, like the Alva Alto churches, you know, like, they have big spaces of light coming in, but mm -hmm. maybe not direct light. So mm -hmm. if you're inside the city, you can uh, create really beautiful rooms and it's, still anyways all about the connection to the outside it doesn't matter you can just have a skylight you know which gives you a connection to the outside i'm sure that if you would have a, a retreat next to a bahngleise to yeah. trails <laughs> tracks or s-bahn or u-bahn or yeah. something and you see every three minutes the u-bahn passing by you know it can be also quite meditative or like True. the the yeah. the remy restaurant um it's on torstraße mm -hmm. The streets and the cars and everything is passing by very, very fast. But you sit inside there like an aquarium and you have your own shelter, your own space. So I think it's more about creating a beautiful room. And from that room, like Peter Sumtor did this in Waltz, when you go to the Therme there, mm -hmm. uh, you have very low window. And when you come inside, you're like, what's Why, you know, I can't see anything. But yeah. once you lie on the sunbed there, you have exactly your view onto the alm where you see the goats or the cows. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about framing a view. And it can be an urban view. It can be a natural view. It has nothing to do if it's uh, in the middle of nowhere or in the middle of a city. Interesting. There's lots of different kinds of experiences. And if you're in a, an urban situation, as an architect, we want to figure out what's the most interesting part of that thing and play that up. Architecture is like a film, though. It's more like a film than it is like a fixed image because there's a sequence of different spaces and it unfolds in time. So this idea that to make a space is about like looking at one thing is not necessarily the case. And one of my favorite kinds of typologies of architecture is actually the courtyard house where there are indoor and outdoor experiences mm -hmm. together. And the nice thing about such a house is not necessarily just that it's outside, but all of the interior spaces and the outside spaces together. So okay. I, know, I, th I think that depends on, depends on where you are and what you need to do. I do think that kind of some connection to the natural world, whether it's being in nature or to light, is critical to making a successful space for whatever purpose. Well, thank you so much. It was super interesting. I mean, I don't have heard any podcast where people actually talk about this thing besides maybe some articles about saging. 
But that's about it. <laughs> and Sage is not very, as we know, it's not very efficient <laughs> for this well, sometimes maybe sometimes but it's not i mean in california you think like you know how it is like everything is sageable uh-huh. but i mean that's interesting because there in la it's like i mean I, I really feel that there's a clean slate there's kind of a i mean the city is like what a hundred years old or something maybe 150 and in in the hills buildings from the 70s like or laurel canyon but there's sometimes there's a little bit of this erratic thing, but of course, other than that, there's nothing there. There's nothing to, to grasp, which is also sometimes weird mm-hmm. that everything kind of evaporates. I and, mean, we can't live uh, without any also like Strahlungen or with yeah, any, yeah, like it's impossible yeah. to live yeah. with. Uh, because sometimes people in LA, that's what they say for living there too long. They feel like they kind of fly away. There's nothing that's kind of keeping them on the ground. And that's literally what happens in the city because everybody's like, everything is spiritualized. Every water bottle is blessed with something. So it's just impossible to not be in this kind of over-spiritualized surrounding, which makes people also uncomfortable in a way. But it's a whole other podcast. Well, thank you very <laughs> so much. Thank you so much. It was oh, really great. having us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.